Several years ago, back when I was a youth pastor, I created a series of illustrative videos intending to make a point, a point about Christians and how we, as Jesus' followers, often very poorly represent him. In Christianity, there's a concept that as ambassadors of Christ, the way we behave, the way that we treat people in the world around us should reveal Jesus. You've probably heard a pastor say something like this, you might be the only Bible someone ever reads. After describing himself as the light of the world and then defining his disciples as light bearers, Jesus specifically exhorts us to, quote, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and then check it out, glorify your Father in heaven. The whole way it's designed to work is that when the world comes in contact with a Christian, they should come in contact with Jesus. The experience they have should literally be divine. That the person should leave the interaction with a residue of Christ. It's why in addition to light, Jesus also describes us as salt. One seen, the other experienced. So back to the videos. Since the world is supposed to learn about Jesus through their interactions with Christians, I thought it would be interesting. It would be an interesting exercise to illustrate how terrible believers are at this by having Jesus act like the stereotypical Christian. To make my point, I ended up editing scenes out of an old 70s Jesus movie and over overdubbing the audio. Now, aside from the goofiness of Jesus being Swedish and the fact that his mouth and, and, and my voice didn't exactly align. Imagine an extremely low-budget foreign film. It was a strange, even bizarre experience. Seeing Jesus act like Christians in this way, it was weird seeing Christ be judgmental of sinners or cliquish with the disciples. It was weird watching Jesus be self-righteous and condescending, generally wussy, or, for that matter, verbalize a hatred for gay people. Yeah, we went there. Since these five videos were kind of sacrilegious by design, we concluded that it, it wasn't exactly a best fit for the 400 or so uh, high school and middle school students who had come to our facility for our youth conference. So we kind of buried it. We didn't show it. And I, and I, and I, I gave a private viewing to our youth group who were you know, already pretty jaded. And yet, the point, the point was still powerful. You see, I wanted the very idea that Jesus would act this way. To be abrasive. To be offensive. And I wanted to do that to hammer home the fact that, you know, it's equally offensive and abrasive to Jesus when he sees you and I behave that way. One of the things that, that gets my go, that irritates me, is how many people end up developing serious and largely unfounded, misconceptions of Jesus simply by watching Christians who claim to represent him fail to act like him in so many ways. Gay people end up believing that Jesus wants them to burn in hell. Why? That's the general vibe fundamental Christians put off. Many think that Jesus is judgmental and that they couldn't possibly be accepted by Christ simply because Christians well, we fail to demonstrate his love for the lost, his heart, the world, and maybe even some of you generally see Jesus. You have this idea that Jesus was a holy roller, a goody two-shoes. He'd never drink. He'd never have fun. He'd never dance or hang out with people that did these things. And why? 
Do we see Jesus that way? Well, because of legalistic Christians who misrepresent him. It's all terribly counterproductive. This morning, I want us to look at one specific person that Jesus not only called to follow him, but would intentionally choose to be one of his closest disciples. This man, like almost everyone Jesus called, is what I would refer to as a misfit. Like he wouldn't have fit in our little Christian, sterilized, religious template of someone Jesus would reach and choose and call and use. He didn't look the part. The reality is that today's church, this man would have been kept at an arm's length. He would have been met with judgment, not love. His past would have made it impossible to see any type of redeemable future. This man would have been written off beyond the impact of grace. This man, the man we'll see this morning, was a misfit that no one would have reached, with maybe the exception of Jesus. Not only should this, this story challenge the way that we view Christ, the way we view Jesus, strip away some of these misconceptions, but, but seeing how Jesus treated people, it should manifest two responses in us. One, it should challenge the way we see and therefore treat the misfits in our midst. And two, it should encourage us that literally no one is beyond the saving grace of God. We find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark, specifically Mark chapter 2. Not a lot of verses, but we're just going to start with verse 13. We read, Then Jesus went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and Jesus said to him, follow me. So Levi arose and followed Jesus. For context, you should keep in mind that Jesus is in a region in Israel known as Galilee. Galilee was really just a collection of towns surrounding the Sea of Galilee. More than likely, Jesus is currently hanging out in the city of Capernaum, which would be his headquarters in the area. Recording the first-hand eyewitness account of Peter, Mark, scribing for Peter, he writes that Jesus went out again by the sea. The multitudes came to him and he taught them. Though it was customary for Jesus to teach the people in the Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath, we're told here that Jesus' teaching ministry was not limited to a place of worship or even a day of worship. In this scene, Jesus is literally having a beachfront Bible study. No doubt, with larger crowds coming to listen, a multitude as is described, Jesus was constantly looking for larger venues that could provide natural vocal acoustics as well as plenty of space. This is why Jesus would often teach from a mountainside or in this case, with the water to his back. I love how the King James Version translates this passage. It reads, And Jesus went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted to him, and he taught the people. This word resorted, it indicated that the people who were coming to Jesus did so out of a deep longing of their soul. It implies that the motivation of the crowd was pure and genuine. Though it was hard to explain, there was just something about Jesus and the words that he spoke that satisfied and quenched a deep spiritual thirst. Back in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, we're actually told the crowds were, quote, astonished or, or literally amazed at his teaching, for Jesus taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The way Jesus presented God's word 
made it come alive. It was piercing and powerful. Oh, to be able to go back in time, right? And hear Jesus preach. How awesome would that be? As Jesus is finishing up his sermon, leaving the shore, making his way back, presumably to Peter's house, which acted as his home in Capernaum. As Jesus is cruising, something catches his attention. It's interesting. Jesus, we're told, he looks over and he sees a man, a man known as Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. Levi was the tax collector. As the apostle Peter recounts the scene to Mark, his protege, he says that without hesitation, Jesus, it's fascinating, he changes course and he proceeds to now go out of his way to the tax office to call Levi to follow him. Then, probably to the surprise of everyone present, with equal resolve and immediacy, what happens? Levi, he gets up, he accepts Jesus' invitation, he leaves everything behind, and he immediately begins following Christ. Historically, we know that Levi, the son of Alphaeus, was also known by his Roman name, which was Matthew. This man that we just see in the text, he would not only become one of the twelve apostles, but he would later write a narrative of Jesus' life similar to Mark's, known as the Gospel of Matthew. Following Pentecost and the birth of the church, history tells us that, that Matthew later ministered in Ethiopia, where he was ultimately martyred for the name of Jesus. Though only one verse, there's a lot about, La Ma about Matthew, about Levi, we know from the passage. By his very namesake, we conclude Matthew, Levi, was of Jewish descent with a priestly heritage. His family would have been extremely religious, likely fundamentally. Because we're also given the name of his father, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, it's probably likely Levi came from a prominent known family. He was a Levite. Aside from this, the mention of his occupation as tax collector also tells us a lot. There is no question, Matthew, by his occupation, he was highly educated. You see, in order to collect taxes for, for Rome, it was required you be skilled in arithmetic, in literate, in, in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. Additionally, as was the norm, collecting taxes, it was a lucrative practice. It's a good job. Matthew would have been incredibly wealthy. Understand right from the beginning, Levi the tax collector. It presents a bit of an interesting dichotomy. Levites from prominent homes were typically groomed to be the religious scholars of the day, or scribes. They, they were even known to become political leaders, like Pharisees and Sadducees. And yet Matthew, for whatever reason, he, he decides to reject his family, reject his religion, reject his heritage, reject his destiny, and instead make the decision to collect taxes for Rome. With all of this in mind, there is no escaping the fact that Levi would have been hated by his Jewish brethren. Because he collected taxes on behalf of the occupying Roman government, being a Jewish tax collector meant that Levi would have been viewed by his brethren as a traitor, an extortioner, a turncoat. The common perspective in this day and age would have been that Levi had betrayed God and God's people for the mighty dollar, the buck, money. To this point, I, I want to just take a, a few minutes and explain to you how a tax collector like Matthew 
actually made his living in the first century. There, there weren't W-2 forms. First, the job of a tax collector wasn't something that you applied for on the basis of merit. These limited positions in the Roman Empire were actually auctioned off to the highest bidder. As such, Matthew, to be a tax collector, would have had to use his inheritance to purchase his position. Matthew would have made a significant personal investment in order to assume the power he now possessed. Secondly, aside from bidding for the job, Rome would then dictate to Matthew what he would need to bring in on a monthly basis. And note, these figures, the percentages, were not disclosed to the general public and could even vary depending on season, who was collecting, what region they were in, how much money Rome needed. Finally, though given a percentage that was private, anything that Matthew was then able to bring in above and beyond that figure was pure profit. Matthew, as all tax collectors, he literally made his money upcharging. Like he gouged the public. He ripped people off. If the percentage was 10% and he could charge 30, he pocketed 20. Beyond that, Matthew had the power to intimidate those who didn't ante up. For example, if someone would refuse to pay, Matthew had the power of Rome, Roman soldiers available to be his muscle. You know, in my mind, as we, as we see Levi, we confuse him when we use this term tax collector. For, for whatever reason, when we hear tax collector, we develop this mental picture of a book nerd, a little man sitting behind a desk, counting coin, kind of in an obsessive, compulsive manner. The irony, though, is that there's little to none historical data to substantiate such a perspective. When we think of tax collector, you know what you typically see? What you typically imagine, for me anyway, it's Ben Stein from Fer Ferris Bueller's Day Off. However, the truth, that's not an accurate portrayal of Matthew at all. Instead of seeing Matthew as Ben Stein, you should instead view him as Polly Walnuts from the hit show The Sopranos. Matthew, not kidding. He was a first century gangster. He's not a book nerd. He's a loan shark. He was basically a lieutenant in a very large, complex crime syndicate. You see, Matthew, as a tax collector, would have been more guilty than just ripping people off. If you crossed Matthew, if you didn't pay up when he came to collect, you might have found yourself being fed to the fishes. Keep in mind, the disdain and hatred for the tax collector was so deep within the Jewish community that Matthew would have found himself excommunicated from the temple. He would have been cut off from having access to the synagogue, the local place of worship. <laughs> to be fair, it's likely Matthew even cared. When Jesus called Jewish fishermen to be his disciples, I raised a few eyebrows. And why? Well, fishermen. They weren't religiously ed educated. They were blue-collar types. Not the sharpest tools in the shed. But when Jesus called Matthew, it would have left everyone in total shock and disbelief. Now, un unconventional fishermen. They were unconventional. 
But at least men like Andrew and Peter and James and John, at least they were good Jewish boys. Not the smartest, but at least they were honest and religious. And yet when Jesus called Levi to follow him, Jesus was intentionally adding a notorious traitor, an anti-religious, money-grabbing, poly walnuts to his inner circle. And to make what Jesus was doing in this scene even worse, recent archaeological digs findings have shown that in Galilee, Rome had specifically levied a special tax on, can you guess it? Yeah, fish. This means that, that the other disciples, the other men standing there when Jesus called Levi, they not only knew Matthew, but it's likely they had been personally ripped off by him. Imagine Peter and the other disciples' reaction when Jesus turns to this notorious gangster, this bully, the guy that had kicked them in the shins and stolen their lunch money, when Jesus says, follow me. Wow. As you read through the first two chapters of Mark's gospel, you'll be struck by the fact that Jesus not only calls the common man to follow him, but Jesus also chooses the deviants. I mean, if Jesus would call Matthew to be a disciple, the truth, not a single person in this room could be excluded on the basis of merit. One of the parts of the text that just jumps out at me when I read through this is that we're told that before Jesus called him, look at it, he first saw Levi. You have to kind of wonder, what was it that Jesus saw? If Jesus saw and therefore evaluated people like we do, there's not a chance in the world he would have called Matthew, of all people, to be a disciple. Jesus would have seen what we saw, a hard and tough, even cold, detached, poly walnuts persona. A persona Matthew had carefully crafted to be good at his job. No one would have ever dreamed that such a man would be chosen by Jesus to be a disciple. So... So what was it that when Jesus looked at Matthew, like what was it that he saw? I think we can say confidently that he saw way more than his outward appearance or, or larger tough guy persona. When Jesus saw Levi sitting at the tax office, he saw without a doubt a side of this man, this misfit that no one else could have or even would have wanted to have seen. There is no doubt in my mind that Jesus, when he looks over that day, and he sees Levi. He's able to look through the facade and see his soul. And what did he see? It's likely, judging by Levi's reaction, that Jesus saw a man mired in guilt. A man filled with condemnation. A man lost. And one who was in desperate need of salvation. Though he'd never admit it, Matthew was probably lonely and empty. Matthew was probably longing for something more, something more than the life that he had created for himself. Now, admittedly, the text doesn't mention any of this, but the proof, the proof is in, is in Matthew's immediate reaction to Jesus' invitation. Like, like don't detach yourself from, from the text. After seeing Levi and locking eyes with this man, Jesus just commands him two words, follow me. And what did Levi do? He immediately got up, left everything behind, and started following Jesus. Matthew heard the call and he responded to the invite. 
There's no conversation. No internal wrestling. No waiting for a a better, more convenient opportunity. And you know, it wasn't as though Matthew's decision to follow Jesus, to leave the tax office, wouldn't have carried with it life-altering consequences. You see, as a tax collector, his decision to abandon his post, to follow Jesus, it would have brought large implications. And there's an element of truth to the fact that fishing, fishing was a business that any of these men could have returned to if the following Jesus thing didn't exactly work out. (laughs) We actually see them doing this after Jesus' death. That said, tax collecting for Rome? Friend, it wasn't a game you could simply pick back up once you left off. Just like the mob, once you're out, you were out for good. Like you irreparably cut ties forever. Now, not to go too far with the analogy, but as a tax collector, the only way you could escape your current identity was to assume a new one. Like, to get out of the mob, what do you have to do? You have to go into witness protection and assume a new identity. The point you shouldn't miss is what Jesus' invitation was designed to afford Levi. And calling him to, to leave it all behind, to follow him. Jesus was giving Matthew an opportunity. An opportunity for a fresh start. A new beginning, a new life. And with few words, Mark tells us that Matthew jumps at the opportunity. He chooses in this moment to leave behind the identity he had made for himself as a tax collector in exchange for what? A new identity as a follower of Jesus. What did Jesus see that day? Aside from Matthew's spiritual longing, I'm convinced, as he does with you and I, that Jesus saw so much more than what presently existed. Jesus saw beyond Matthew's crimes, beyond his rejection of God and God's people, Jesus saw even more than his past. As in Matthew's case, I believe that Jesus, when he invites a person to follow him, and you need to know this this morning, when he does this, he does it not based on one's past, past mistakes and sin and transgression, He makes the invitation rather based on who he knows you'll become in his righteousness. You see, Jesus invites people to make a great radical exchange. He asks us to leave behind the old life we made for ourselves for a new life found following him, being his disciple. Don't miss it. Jesus was asking Levi in this moment, to leave behind the person he presently was in order to become the person Jesus desired to make him into. How glorious. Matthew, he had to make a decision, right? He had to decide if he was willing to leave behind the fleeting things of his world so that he could receive a lasting reward reserved for all of eternity found only in following Jesus. And don't forget it, man. Matthew... Matthew ain't a saint. Matthew was a terrible person. Like nothing about Matthew demanded God's mercy. He had done nothing to merit Jesus' invitation to receive a new identity. He's just sitting in his tax office by himself when Jesus, through his grace, 
decided to call him. Jesus was reaching out to the misfit because it's the misfits that Jesus came to save. It's clear his offer to Levi was too good to pass up. Sometimes when we look at stories like this one, we we tend to keep them in isolation from the larger flow of the text. If you consider the flow of Mark's gospel leading up to this story, you're going to discover that Matthew is actually the perfect embodiment of the two previous miracles Jesus has just performed leading up to this text. Spiritually speaking, Matthew was both the leper Jesus healed at the end of chapter 1 and the lame man Jesus raised up in the first part of this very chapter. As illustrated by the leper, the natural consequences of sin had taken its toll on on Levi's life. And like the lame man, he now found himself completely paralyzed to do anything about it. He's stuck. But you know, there is one interesting distinction we see in Levi's story as opposed to the, the two previous. While the leper desperately came to Jesus on his own accord, and the lame man was lovingly brought to Jesus by four friends, In this situation, in the story, it's Jesus who intentionally goes out of his way to reach out to Matthew. I'm so encouraged by this. Sure, like the leper, there are people who come to Jesus on their own. They typically do so out of complete desperation. This is a person tired of their life and sin, tired of the consequences that sin has wrought. They pursue Jesus. They come before him. They cry out, if you're willing, you can heal me. They plead for his salvation. Others, though, are more like the lame man. They're paralyzed by their sin, stubborn to come to Jesus on their own. And yet, by Jesus' grace, this is what happens. God, he, he eventually uses their friends to pick them up out of their weakness, to love them through their lameness, and to bring them to Jesus. But there are also men like Levi. They're oblivious to sin's damaging effects. They have no positive influence to point them the right direction. The truth, they're not even seeking. In actuality, these type of misfits have been judged, have been written off by the religious establishment. And yet, how amazing it is that Jesus sees They're not looking, they're not seeking, but Jesus is. He sees their inner needs. He sees their deeper longings. And when the moment is right, Jesus goes out of his way. He seeks them out by offering just a simple invitation. Whether this morning you find yourself sitting in that pew like the leper, completely desperate, or maybe like the lame man, a friend has brought you here this morning. Or maybe... You're sitting there with zero expectations, like Levi. But this is what I can say with total certainty. Jesus sees you. And he's speaking through the void with just a simple command, an invitation. Follow me. I love what immediately follows. Look at verse 15. Now it happened. As Jesus was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many And they followed him. Not only should the way Jesus calls the misfit challenge the way that we view such people, but what then happens, it should move us in profound ways. Mark is telling us that Jesus 
He's called Levi to follow him. Levi responds by accepting the invitation. And then something mind-blowing happens. Instead of going back to Peter's house, which is presumably where Jesus was headed, what happens? This detour continues all the way to now Levi's house for dinner. But that's not all. Knowing that Jesus is now chilling at his crib, Levi pulls out his smartphone, sends out a Facebook blast, and invites all of his friends, all of these sinners and other tax collectors, to come hang out. Like, in a sense, Matthew throws a spontaneous party, a flash mob. Culturally speaking, it might have been shocking for Jesus to have called Levi. But then for Jesus to go to Levi's home and break bread with his community of, quote, sinners? That would have been scandalous. The religious establishment would have seen Jesus' behavior as completely inappropriate. Matthew. Matthew's life changed the moment he encountered Jesus. And now what does he want to do? He wants to expose every single person he knows. (coughs) to the same dynamic. Most incredibly, we're told the results of the evening was that many of Levi's friends, what happens? They come to the party and then they encounter Jesus. The same encounter that Matthew had earlier that day, many had that evening. Many become followers. A misfit saved by grace now desired other misfits to experience the same. I cannot escape the fact that if Jesus saw a misfit like Levi so much differently than the religious world of his day, then maybe, just maybe, we, as his representatives, should also be willing to see others through the same heavenly lens. Jesus saw a man, no doubt about it, most Christians today would have overlooked He saw the man Levi could become. Sadly, we'd only have seen the misfit he was. The interesting thing about this story is the example that Matthew presents for us. Here we have a man, a new disciple of Christ. I mean, we're talking hours old. And what's he doing? He's immediately bringing Jesus into his dark world of misfits for one reason. Jesus had already proven his love for misfits when he went out of his way to personally call Levi. Levi knew from firsthand experience that if Jesus' love and Jesus' grace could be extended to a man like himself, then that love and that grace could be extended to absolutely anyone. Sadly, I have found that Christians fail to, to represent Christ to the misfits, because we've lost sight of the fact that apart from grace, those misfits are fundamentally no different than we are. Like that there's no difference. The only thing that that makes you any different from the rest of the world is God's grace. It's not you. Christian, it should be your heart. It should be your passion to seek out the misfits. Our religious world has written off for one reason. When you were a misfit, Jesus didn't write you off. Instead, he went out of his way to reach you. That you, friend, are a misfit saved by grace. The great tragedy is that the church today isn't reaching the Levi's because we've really lost 
lost touch with the heart and the mission of Jesus. Like we've lost sight of his grace. We're failing to see people as he does. Jesus called us to bear his light in the darkness. In the darkness. He's called us to be salt. Something people see and then see Jesus. Something people experience and experience Jesus. When people come in contact with you, do they experience Jesus and his love and his grace? The truth and the reason I wanted to take a Sunday to look at this particular story is that seeing how Jesus treats misfits like Levi, it should challenge the way that we all treat people. We should know from personal experience that literally no one is beyond the reach of his saving grace because you weren't beyond the reach of that grace. It's my prayer that when people interact with you, they leave that interaction sensing that they've encountered Jesus. And finally, if you're sitting there this morning and you've yet to make the decision to follow Jesus, if like the leper, you're desperate, come. He says, follow me. If you were dragged here by four friends, there's a reason. They know you're lame and need Jesus. And he's saying, follow me. But if you're not seeking, if you have no expectation, if you have no idea why you're even here, I want you to know something. If Jesus would call a scoundrel like Matthew, Polly Walnuts, then there is no reason that he wouldn't call you. And I can say this from personal experience. I've been saved by his grace and his grace alone. And I can hear you thinking, right? The gears are turning. But Zach, come on, man. You don't know me. Like, you don't know what I've done. Shoot, you don't even know what I'm presently up to, what I'm doing, what i got planned for the rest of the day. Like, you don't know the crimes I've committed, the wrongs, how I've hurt people, how I've messed things up. Zach, you don't know me, man. How can you say that with certainty? To the point of me knowing you, you're right. I don't. I don't know you, and I'm not going to presume to. But I can say this. While I might not know you, Jesus does. He sees you. And this morning, he's calling you anyway. How amazing, right? That while you may not be seeking Jesus, Jesus is seeking you. And we have no idea what Matthew heard that day. But we do know he heard one thing. He heard Jesus' call. I have no doubt that the very fact Jesus, a rabbi, a respected person, would go out of his way to reach him a misfit, man, that was all Levi needed to know to be like, I want to hang out with that guy. I'm not going to lie to you. Levi's decision would come at a cost, a steep one. But in the moment, when he decides to follow Jesus, this is what he knew. What he'd lose would pale in comparison 
to the life he'd gained as a follower of Jesus. Please know, Jesus could care less what you've done. He could care less where you've come from or what your present identity might be. Instead, Jesus' chief desire is what right now you're willing to do. Jesus cares not where you've come from, but he cares where you're going to go moving forward. Jesus cares and he desires. It's his concern. He wants, he's, will you accept a new identity? I don't care about the old identity. I want to give you a new identity. Something that Jesus could only offer. He doesn't care about your former life. He's interested in giving you a better life, a new life. Jesus, Jesus saw Levi and he sees you. And friend, the invitation is the same. Follow me. And so Father, Lord, with 